Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to Live Longer, the podcast for the start of our second series, The Art of Living, after a very successful conclusion to the first series. And this is again in collaboration with Homerton Changemakers Programme at Cambridge University and hand in hand with Iona, a digital healthcare company that I founded with a number of colleagues to enable people to get the right information at the right time to live longer, healthier lives. And today I have a really, really interesting guest. Who is he? This person is an architect, an internationally acclaimed architect who's an award-winning architect. Um, He's an academic, a visiting professor at Sheffield University where he conducted his undergraduate and indeed he also is a visiting professor at Bartlett University. He founded his own company back in 1989 Alfred Hall Monaghan and Morris. I'm not going to give away who this is right now. You'll have to wait until the end of this intro. Um, but he's also a teacher and, and a judge and, and juror for the Reba Sterling Award and, and many other awards of which he himself was shortlisted to receive one for one of the projects that we're going to discuss today. So apart from this amazing portfolio of projects that he's done, very well known for a number of the Royal Court renovations in Liverpool, Kentish Town Health Centre and the regeneration and rejuvenation of the TV centre at White City is projects that will resonate with a number of our listeners today. But he is really a man and, and this is what he's all about, collaborative creativity integrating digital technology in the artistic and architectural design and sustainability, which of course is key to individual and societal health and well-being and to enable us all to live a longer, healthier life. So why do I want to interview this person? Well, ironically, it was one of my patients who suggested I do so. And I always try and listen to my patients. I think it's very important. And just speaking um, with this gentleman, I realised he had so many healthcare projects I think are really well worthwhile and really, really important perspective on how we design buildings as we emerge post-COVID because our world really is changing and to keep us safe and living longer, we need to embrace good design of the spaces that we live in. So join me in welcoming Paul Monaghan. Paul, welcome. Hi. Hi, Millie. Thanks for that very flattering introduction. Thank you. No, it's a pleasure. And although we haven't formally met, I feel I know you because I've read so much about you and heard so many excellent things. And you're aware that I interviewed another um, award-winning architect, Christopher Wilkinson, who speaks so highly of you. And it really inspired me to interview you because I think inspiration is something we all thrive on. And I try and interview people who inspire me. So hopefully they'll inspire our listeners. So thank you for coming. Well, and I suppose Chris is such a fantastic architect and he's Someone when we began, we were very inspired by ourselves because of the quality of the work he did and the things he achieved. So that's very flattering coming from him. Thank mm, you. No problem. Thank you. So um, what I'd like to do is just start off and, and ask you to just tell me a little bit about uh, some of the projects that you've been doing. Let's just focus because I, I like in this second series of Live Longer, the podcast, to take a deeper dive into some of the more healthcare related projects. And that's one of the reasons I've, I've chosen you to chat to you this morning. And You've told me about one of your first projects, which was um, in Kentish Town Healthcare Centre, which is an award-winning health centre. Tell me a little bit about how that came about. And Yeah, well, that was must have been about 12, 14 years ago now. Um, we won a competition to design this new health centre, and it was an unusual health centre. It was more like a mini hospital. So it had um, a big doctor's practice with about 30 GPs in. It was one of the biggest in that part of London. It was going to have a dental practice in. It had um, 
breast screening centre for the local area. It then had offices for Camden's uh, medical staff and nurses, and it had training. So it was it was trying to put all these different components that are normally in separate buildings in one building. Um, it was run by an incredibly inspiring man called Dr. Roy McGregor, who was the only doctor I know who gets the Architects Journal every week, which was quite amusing. So he loved architecture. Mm. And we did the competition. Our whole concept really was was trying to come from the patient's point of view, which is that patients are nervous when they arrive. Some people aren't, but quite a lot of people are. And that therefore trying to make a very calming and non-institutional building was was everything. So the device we used was in, the building was on the corner of, um, or the end of a, a row of um, houses, that we created a street through the middle of the building, which was open all the time to anyone. So that effectively... You could walk through the building and it was like a thoroughfare as well as being um, a reception to the doctor's surgery. So that was the first thing we did. We then, off the waiting room, created this giant space which um, had a garden off it. And the garden, you could also wait in because we tend to find in waiting rooms people sometimes want spaces that are quieter and away from people. So I suppose those are the key touchstones. And then inside, if you went in there, you'd probably think that it was, I don't know, an office building or an art gallery because it's full of art. And that was one of the things that came from us and Roy. So I suppose it was balancing all those things. And then key components of everything we do, which is light and air, great quality, you know, so great ventilation, but lovely light coming from the roof, coming from windows, big windows, so that you're getting plenty of daylight in. And I think that was key to really the project success. Mm. I mean, uh, what I find fascinating, you've touched on it there, you've mentioned patient experience. This is so important. And really, Roy was way ahead of his time. I mean, now we try and put our patients first. And there is this concept of, we've always tried to put patients first, but we really are having this concept of patient-centric information. Now, this is a patient-centric space. So it doesn't really feel like a doctor's surgery. It feels like an extension of one's life. So it's not a scary experience for the patients coming. Absolutely. And, you know, on on the first floor where all the doctor's consulting rooms are, there is an art gallery, effectively, all the walls, you know, because you, you all know, we've all been to Dr. Surgery, the loads of doors and loads of walls. In between the doors is art all the way through. And we created a system like we did. We were designing the Saatchi Gallery in London at the time. We used the same hanging system so they could really quickly change the art. And then they used um, a charity called Art for Hospitals to provide really high-quality art, which they change every two or three months. So I think that idea of that you're in the waiting room you're looking at art and there's lots of light in there the furniture doesn't look like a doctor's surgery it's furniture that you'd find say in our office an architect's office so it was sort of very comfortable and then there are artifacts there there there's this amazing chest of drawers bits of lion witch in the wardrobe that was left by one of the patients when they died and it was you know a hugely expensive piece of furniture and, and they wanted to contribute something to the surgery so there's all this ephemera around there which you don't normally find. The problem with doctor surgeries and hospitals, it's the clinical health. So it's to do with surfaces that need wiping down. And what we try to do is have, and that's what makes doctor surgeries have lino on the floor 
and look and have you know surfaces that feel very institutional and we tried to change all those things in this building and work with the regulators to make sure that it felt more homely in some way Mm. And presumably CQC have rated it outstanding um, or, or given it a very high rating. So you were able to change the lino and swap it out for something more contemporary and better feel for the patients. Exactly. And, and I think also bringing things like greenery inside the building was, was key so that, that greenery is good. Um, having little terraces on the upper levels was good so that there are bits where people can effectively sit outside if they're waiting upstairs for a doctor so I, th- I think all of those things really contributed and I, I um it was a very special project I remember it was quite a hot all architecture projects are hard to do and I remember sitting on the balcony at the top with Roy at the end and I said we've we've managed to do it Roy it was the day the building opened and then he just burst into tears and I burst into tears and we couldn't believe we'd managed to get everything through the regulations, get a special building within a standard healthcare budget. And it it just shows what I've always realized. You've got to have people like Roy who have passion to take things, to make things more innovative and take them further. And he, as you said, he was well ahead of his time. And to be perfectly blunt, very few health centers like that have been built in the last 10 years. That was all, I think, in the labor administrative where they put a lot of money into healthcare buildings. And I think it's a great pity because it's not just hospitals that need to be good, it's small health centres too. I entirely agree. And, you know, unless private funding, there is um, a gentleman I interviewed last week, Mr. Masood Timery, an ophthalmologist, and he um, managed to get the trust in West Sussex to sell land. And then he designed an ophthalmology outpatients. And it's all around the science of creation from chaos to synchrony. And he's a photographer. And so he actually has this art gallery within his ophthalmology department with a number of award-winning photographers and himself, his own work donated. And it is an incredible experience. But one of the ladies who donated an important um, photograph, Marilyn Davies, I believe she actually photographed Einstein in the 50s. She said when she went wow. along, I know, amazing, she donated a number of her photographs. But she said, I noticed that the patients were still looking at TVs and they weren't looking at the pictures. So I think now they've taken out the TVs to, to really, really ground the patients in some, you know, more natural entertainment, shall I say? Well, the other thing we banned in the health centre, because normally, I know I went for a blood test a while ago in the, the hospital near me, and it's just full of signs on the wall telling you not to do things, telling you the day, which make you quite anxious anyway, but also are a complete mess. So you know the way doctors or, or sorry, it's just known that you just stick things on the wall with blue tack or we banned all of that in Kentish Town. There was one little notice board, like a village green notice board, where they were all on. And um, it's amazing just doing small things like that, how suddenly it looks uncluttered and feels more relaxing. Because all that mess makes people more anxious, I think. And, and whereas you look at one of the things about art is it makes you pensive, thoughtful, and and, um, and can fill you with delight or, or, or other emotions. Mm. And I noticed that particular surgery, again, are ahead of the game with their digital technology infrastructure, online bookings they've had for a long time. And they've won awards for the quality of their practice, not just the surroundings. And it would be it resonates with me that when you take the trouble to think about the building and build it from scratch, then, of course, every other little detail that person is going to put in the same degree of effort. So I'm not surprised that year on year this practice win awards for the clinical care as well as the environment. 
Yeah, I think that, you know, as I go on, I realize how groundbreaking they were. I think I told you the other day that they're 150 years old. They were set up in Kentish Town. And Kentish Town is a really odd demographic. Half of it is incredibly wealthy and the other half is incredibly, um, has, has a lot high levels of poverty and high levels of disability. Because um, it's just in that crunch of London before it gets much richer, I suppose. And they were set up in, in the 1880s and the rich paid for their health care and that allowed them to treat the poor. And that's been their dedict. They were one of the only doctors not to vote for the to vote for the NHS in the late, which I, know, I was always amazed or always tell me how most doctors voted against the NHS <laughs> in 1946, how times have changed. But that then comes through to the way they treat people now. But there were, there were two innovative things they did. They, they were paperless from 2012, which is 10 years ago or nine years ago, which was very unusual. And then none of the doctors had their own room. They had a tray, which they put their family photographs on, any of their papers, put it downstairs in the main office. And we had signs that were magnetic that you put onto the door with the doctor's name on. And that meant you didn't have one doctor who was only there two days a week with his room empty all the time. All the rooms were used all the time. And it was such a simple idea, but no, one, no one's really ever done it. No, and very good for the doctors too, because speaking as a doctor, you know, I worked in a fabulous hospital, the Royal National Hospital for Rheumatic Diseases when I moved back from Canada first. And, and that, that was actually funded by the rich to get lepers off the street of, of Bath in 1700s. But it has been an institution in Bath for many years. But I remember the first day I was directed to room one and I was told, now this Dr. Stone is going to be your room, room one, until the day you retire. And I thought I would go crazy because I thought I'm a free spirit. Am I going to be in room one every Monday and Thursday for the rest of my life till I'm 65? So I can really identify with giving the doctor some liberation, ability to move around, change. Because you, when you change your environment, you get a different perspective. And that's important because you can't just be stuck in your ways. As a physician, you need to think. And, and the simple act of changing a room can really, really, you know, enrich your, your thought process. But, but they had another bit where it wasn't just they did embrace digital things very early on. But they also there was a hole in the middle of the floor where the consulting rooms were down to the big main office where all the doctors, you know, would, would arrive in the admin staff. And there was a window there. So if, the, if there was some sort of thing they wanted to check, they could go in, open the window and shout down into the, into the floor below. <laughs> and, they, and they liked that thing, the interaction. So I think they were using the di digital to maximize the personal um, relationships, you know, the, the more analogue relationships. So mm. fascinating. That's really fascinating. And you then came in with the sustainable angle and giving them a welcoming, calm atmosphere. And, and you translated that to your North London Hospice initiative as well, didn't you? Yeah, again, a very different type of um, building in a suburb of London, just near Enfield, surrounded by sort of semi-detached houses. And it was North London Hospice is a charity and it's a charity that it's there to help carers, the people who, who need palliative care. So what they do is take the people who need palliative care in for the day to give the carers a day off. And with it being palliative care, it's, it's obviously, um, in a way, it needs to be a mini hospital too, but it's only a very small building. And our concept there was, was a big house, and it looks like a big house. So it's got a big pitched roof. It's made out of brick. Every window is different. So every room has a different orientation with its window. So some have corner windows, some have floor to ceiling windows, and some have sort of 
special picture windows. And that was really important to us. Again, light and air. A connection with a garden behind. So there was this sort of secret garden behind the building, which was really important to for people who maybe just want to get outside. And, you know, that's down to what the chairs are like, you know, because obviously people who are quite ill and people who are old anyway have trouble getting out of a chair. And architects always picking inappropriate chairs because they like the look of things. So trying to find a nice chair that, that was that was really good and we found one. We had things like a hairdresser in there, just a small hairdresser where I used to, sorry, it sounds a bit fancy, but I go to Charles Worthington because I designed, who's um, quite a famous hairdresser. I don't know if you see him, but I went, I, I went there because I designed his first hairdressers years ago. Mm-hmm. So I photographed what they had there and made sure they had what a Charles Worthington customer would have in the hairdressers mm. there. And little things like that. Again, brickwork and natural materials, so no clinical. Everything was timber floors and there was some carpet in some parts. You know, really beautiful finishes, places for art. And at the heart of it was this giant kitchen and sort of dining room, which had windows on either side. And, you know, it's it's a very moving place to go to because the, the carers who look after the people there, the staff themselves, it's quite a traumatic job um, all day long, looking after, you know, I don't know, in, in one day they could have maybe a maximum dozen people who are very close to the end of their lives with lots of different issues. So it's a, it's a really important place. And things like a lot of them have wheelchairs, so the ability to move around, to have wide corridors and the corridors being pleasant places. So I think that was important. But you mentioned sustainability. That was really key to the clients at North London Hospice, that there was something about sustainability. In something about the idea, you were you were uh, protecting the earth. You were letting life go on. You were, you were prolonging the life of that area by, by using the, the building itself. And that went from solar cells on the roof we had bat boxes because there were bats on the site and we had these little bat boxes built in because you can't really you have to if bats are in a certain area you it, you know you can't just suddenly move them they don't just suddenly move house so we had bat boxes we had sedum roofs so like a, a growing roof um and then you know fantastic little things like a heat pump that that provided hot water and heating so it was a really special building for us and um again all of it was about coming from the patient's point of view or in that case they're not really patients they're there to have a good day you know there's art classes they're there to enjoy their their day so and and it was all about coming from their point of view from arrival so that we know a lot of them get dropped off by a car so it's like a port cashier like you would get in a hotel so if you got out the car you wouldn't get wet sliding doors when you go in and beautiful art when you go in it feels like you're arriving at a small hotel and and that you feel lifted hopefully when you go there Mm, living life longer and healthier you know even if you have a terrible illness like cancer it still mean you you can still feel well and what you're doing is you're enabling people to live longer healthier yes their life is you know, by virtue of having cancer, going to be shortened. But that component that they are there, they're maximising that experience is what I'm hearing from this initiative. And that's just incredible. Yes, I was going to say, of course, the Maggie Centre are just exemplary in that. I know Chris designed one, Mm. but they are, you know, a fantastic place to... um, I've had friends who visited them and they're just such an uplifting place. And um, 
and I think a lot of it is the architecture because they're so beautiful. They're really stunning uh, and, and relaxing at the same time. Yes, and I was involved in another initiative in Circle Health. Um, it's now owned by BMI, but the first hospital in Bath looked out over the beautiful, um, stunning scenery. They brought Mandarin Oriental staff for the food. In fact, the food <laughs> was critiqued for being too rich. But all of this combined to give a good patient experience, which I think is, is fundamental to what we're trying to do to help our patients. You, you've hit the nail. Some of the things to do in health buildings are so simple. A room with a view yeah. means everything. You know, actually having a fantastic view is is such a simple thing to do normally. You know, and it and it it's not doesn't cost money. So I think those things are the simple things that that if you get them right, they make a massive difference. Mm, no, absolutely. And you know, sadly, then there are some people that you know succumb in life. And your your next project was the. I think it hasn't finished yet, the older centre. But in my understanding from what you explained to me is that this is going to be a centre where people um, who have lost a child. Now, this is something that's very close to my heart. Um, my, my own daughter had neuroblastoma, a form of cancer, but, but I'm so privileged and lucky and honoured that she did survive. But there were times where I was told she would die and, and times I thought she would die. And there wasn't really anywhere that we could go to have counselling. So I think this is just an incredible initiative. And I want you to tell us a little bit about that as well. Yeah, well, it's an extraordinary project and, and it is now open, but it opened during lockdown. So it's not oh. really fully open yet. Mm. It was built in lockdown as well. So we couldn't get it in Liverpool. It's it's on the road I lived in, and so that's why I wanted to go for it. It's it, it's 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 part of Alderhay Hospital, which is the biggest children's hospital in in Europe, I think, which is a brand new hospital now. It was was quite Victorian hospital, and I was there, and I thought, what a fantastic opportunity. And also, I thought I, my mum still lived there, so I thought I'd be able to go and see my mum more. But um, <laughs> unfortunately, she passed away just before it started on site. So, Sorry to um, hear that. I had my uh, no well. Uh, I had my own, you know, the building became even more special for me in a way. So there's the building. We, we, we won the competition and the whole building is about dealing with um, families who, who have had a bereavement. So it's very, very different to North London Hospice, but some of the same devices are needed. So this is all about how you, how you in some way can be helped a little bit when children or, or older children um, pass away. And of course, what we were briefed very early on that you will never ever recover from that. And um, I think they described it as like a, a, an egg, a fried egg that you you then build your entire life around that child for the rest of your life. So that child is always part of your life, and that's what they mentor and t and, and talk about to try and help to create some sort of healing. I mean, I remember going there, and the hospital, the brand new hospital, is quite a big building. And we were building a new building next to it. And, and it was the the client. We went to the, a little garden where, which was a sort of peaceful garden for the for the hospital. And I noticed a load of cigarette butts on the floor. And I said, do you, do you, um, do you let people smoke here? And he said, um, you try and tell someone who's lost a child to stop smoking. Mm. So it was, it was, it was really moving. And um, everyone who works in the center has lost a child. And there are several components of the building. The first one is sort of offices that they need, but very small. But they also have a thing called the child death line, which is 24 hours a day. And anyone who's lost a child can type in child death and they, they, go, they can go to that number. And they have specialist counsellors, again, who've lost children to help talk 
people through on the phone. And that's the only one in the country. This building, by the way, is the only one in the country, which I find staggering. I know, you know, you were telling me you've been to Great Ormond Street. I think they have a small little room, but this is the only purpose-built room for helping council people. Um, and people go there for years. So the second part of it is like a, a, a room that is for either um, yoga or or briefing or, or teaching. And then the centre, again, just like a Maggie Centre, just like North London Hospice, is this giant living room with a kitchen at the other end with windows, full-height windows each side. And then finally you go through another bit and you go to the, the counselling rooms, which are small rooms. It's all about natural materials. So there's timber floors all the way through. Brick walls are exposed, art on the walls. But our big idea was the book The Secret Garden, and the secret garden is all about the idea of loss and how you, you, you deal with loss and how this neglected garden that then is, is manicured into better shape heals the sense of loss for that family. And that's so if, if you like, the whole building has got this walled garden all the way around it. So whenever you're inside the, health, the, the, the center itself, you're looking out into this beautiful landscape. Um, it has a load of pyramid roofs, so it's very unusual on the outside. So every room is different. Every room is a different shape. And even things like the toilets, the toilets are big, very luxurious is the wrong word, opulent, I'd say, because people sometimes go in there and cry and they need you know, a chair in there just to be by themselves. So I suppose it's, this was a sense of we learned a lot from North London. The difficulty, of course, is you can't help anyone who's lost a child. And that's the, the real sense of, it's, it's a very moving building to be in because you just sense that loss. And, and it brings out your own grief. You know, I found it helped me deal with my mother, to be honest. You know, it's not, they always say it's not just about children, but, um, but anyway, that's, that's what the building's about. But I'm hearing that, you know, you have such an intricate knowledge of the experience of the parent as they go through the grieving process without actually having experienced a loss of child yourself. This tells me that you must really listen and interrogate very closely the client and spend time with them to get this sense of empathy. Or how does this come about in your journey to design a building like this? I think, again, you know, I talked about Roy being an amazing client. These people were too. They were passionate about it, passionate trying to tell us about what it might be like to be going in there and, and the sort of sense of space that you needed, the scale of space and the intimacy in there, you know, down to the, the, the tree is a major symbol for them. So there's a tree in the main living room which has loads of leaves on and what happens every year in Liverpool Cathedral, everyone has a leaf and they write a message to their lost one and put it on the tree. And then that tree is taken to the centre for the year to, to, as a remembrance for everyone. And so there are things like that that are really important symbols for people. So you realise there are things about memory um, that really help people get through things. But I think that was it was really listening to them and realising that, when you were in a room and maybe you were crying or you were very, you know, you were, you were feeling traumatized, that room felt very safe. That room felt like no one could hear, that no one could see in. And that was really key. And that's why looking out into the garden was really important too. So that you, you know, that the garden, you just look out and you can't see anything but the plant. So I think it, it was, yeah, in a way it was trying to translate that. 
And then we had videos, you know, CGI videos to try and help them imagining it. And, you know, then they contributed hugely. You know, we talked a lot about the furniture, trying to make the furniture feel like you were at home. Again, this non-institutional thing. So, And, I, I, you know, I went there. I'm going there this afternoon, but I went there about two weeks ago. Met a lady whose daughter was in, was having some therapy at that time. And she just said she loves, her daughter loves coming here because it's such a lovely building. And she feels so relaxed when she walks in. It's quite special as an architect mm. when someone tells you that so and it's had you know on twitter it's had fantastic reactions to the few people who've been able to go there and i suppose um as an architect it's very it's very rare you can do something that maybe helps someone i mean i'd say schools and healthcare buildings are the two things that we can do that can in a small way add to improving people's lives or outlook on life Mm, and also their sense of wellness and, you know, I think emerging post-COVID, you know, architects are going to be extremely important in the design of buildings. You know, we talked the other day about the ventilation, air movement, the, the touching and the non-touch surfaces and how you automate that. And this brings together your sense of, you know, integrating digital technology to make these buildings safer, but also maintain the beauty as well. Talk to me a little bit about how you see post-COVID emerging in your world. Yeah, well, as well as health centres, we do a lot of other things like housing and and offices, um, as well as schools, etc. But if I take those two as things that uh, are probably going to be most affected, I think um, if I take housing, I think what happened is that the the need for outdoor space. Well, number number one, but before COVID, the the growing interest in sustainability and the importance of it. And finally, people twigging that we have a climate crisis and the government and most governments realizing that is the first thing. So people have got more interested and more activated in terms of climate, which is one thing that's going to change buildings hugely. The second thing, I think, in the COVID world, it's outdoor space totally. It's whether so people stuck in small flats without balconies. What happened is the parks were just flooded. I remember going on cycle rides in my one hour that we were allowed to. You know, maybe sometimes I went to an hour and a half. I'm probably sure we were all a bit naughty. Mm-hmm. And uh, you'd, you'd go through like Hyde Park or, and it was just full of parks because there was nowhere else for people to go. And I think it made everyone realise the benefits of outdoor space, how lucky we are in our country where outdoor space is pretty protected. So, I, but, but too often it's not near where you live. We've all seen really built up estates with, you know, the the, the 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 public space is a big car park, you know, so no one can use it. You have, we've all seen those council estates with a load of grass around it with no ball games on. And I think all that's got to go. So that's in housing. I think it's about outdoor space. And it's internally, I think it's about people have had to learn to live together in smaller spaces. So how you design a space where someone could do work or do their homework that while someone else can watch television or, or cook. And I think it's about really getting into the detail of flats to try and get all these spaces working. Because there's no question about it, there are going to be more people working from home in the future. So I think I'd like to think we get start to see bigger flats and bigger houses. Offices are, are completely different. Offices have, for a long time, have been obsessed by sustainability because the staff that they employ who are, you know, if you say the university graduates in their 20s and 30s, again, are very, very 
uh, committed to climate crisis. And so they want a company who are also committed. So what we're finding now is there's a new generation of office buildings that are totally green. And the old buildings, which, you know, with the suspended ceilings and air conditioning, are all being vacated. And, and I think this is the major change in offices. And it's much bigger. That idea of climate is much more important in office or much more valued than it is in housing at the moment. And of course, if you take post-COVID, obviously one of the most important things is fresh air and ventilation. So we're lucky here in my office in London, we've got a very green building where, where we have we have what, what we call air conditioning. In the room I'm in at the moment, I've got some because when you've got, say, eight people in a meeting, you need ventilation. That's the only way to do it. But in our main office, it's all opening windows. It's all natural ventilation. So airflow is everything. Space is important. So now people were crammed in before lockdown. We've probably all worked in offices that are absolutely computer to computer, banging into people. Everyone's had to spread out now because mm. everyone's been trying to work out what happens next when people go back to work. So more space is important. More the value of work and what it means. And I think this gets back to your well-being, that work isn't just about sitting in a computer with the headphones on all day. Work is about collaboration and meeting people. And that satisfies the soul. And I think that's, I think what everyone, I think that's the profound I suppose my profound conclusion after a year and a half of lockdown that I need to be with people and I need to interact with people. I don't maybe need it five days a week, but I need it. I can't do it no days a week. And I think a lot of people are probably feeling that way. So therefore, building in these spaces that people can collaborate, sit around, have an informal chat. What I've missed is that sort of, you know, what we always call the water cooler moment. Yes. Mm. Where you, you're sort of having a, making a coffee chat with someone whether it's them telling you they're about to have a child or whether it's them telling you about a great idea they've just had about the building. That's, that incidental moment has not happened for a year and a half, and I've missed it. So I think office is going to be about natural ventilation, about more space for people. And I think, again, about if people are used to working at home, the office space can't, just like we don't want institutional spaces in health centres, it can't feel really corporate. I think mm. people don't want that anymore. I think they want something. So you're seeing offices full of plants, full of full of breakout spaces. And I think that's going to be the way ahead. Mm, I absolutely agree. I think a hybrid approach, nobody wants to be fully at home. Nobody wants to be fully in the office. So bringing the home to the office and the office to the home is the challenge for the post-COVID era, really, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think I think I mentioned, again, things like touch were very important. So things like I think it was like brass door handles are better than aluminium or stainless steel. But I think, you know, things like toilets need to be well ventilated. Do you have hand dryers or do you have paper towel? I mean, you know, as architects, we get into this level and, and you know, is what, what's safer? But I think, uh, I think, and you, you will know much better than me, that touch is, is less important now in terms of COVID. It's more, it's more, Everything's moved into air movement and, and making sure you get good air movement. Mm, yeah, and we, we've a number of us have been using the air pure ventilation systems where you plug them in in your office and then hopefully it cleanses the air. I have a number of colleagues who've bought these uh, machines from in the US. I don't know if you've heard of them, but portable air flow ventilation equipment where, you know, you've got an older building and you haven't designed it de novo to incorporate these ideas and you have to make do and, and innovate around that. Well, it's a good point. We were doing um, a big 
um, headquarters building for a very big, well-known digital company. And what they decided is they couldn't bring any air in from the outside because of the pollution levels in London. And this was must have been about 12 years ago. And you forget that um, our cities are still quite polluted with the, with the yeah, emissions from cars, etc. So, again, there's more focus on that as well about fresh air. You know, buses going electric. Haven't we all seen cars, hybrid cars, electric cars, but clearly the way of the future? I don't know. You know, you see so many more of them now, and I think that's going to help enormously too. So just when you're walking on the streets. This is probably a good point to close on. I mean, just reflecting on our conversation, I can hear how you, when you go to a new brief and you go for a competition, you're passionate and it has to inspire you. You take counsel from the people and you really listen and try and deliver something that's very, very special. Um, And I can see that. And just talking to you makes me want to go and visit all these wonderful buildings and just experience that, because I think that's the best way of appreciating art. And architecture is part of art. And I think your ideas and concepts for the future are really important because how we set off designing the future is in our control. And also with your positions of influence with government um, guideline committees, I think that will really help change the agendas also. So funding is available for the marginalised communities. And it isn't just people who can afford it can have these solutions. It's everybody. So I want to thank you so much, Paul, for coming on the call this morning. It's been really, really interesting chatting to you. Thank you. Well, Millie, it's been a pleasure as well. And it's great that you're bringing to the attention the idea of design, art, light and air and all of these things within your world too, because as I said, I think more could be done to help more people. But it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much, Paul. And thank you to all my listeners. I hope you've enjoyed that conversation as much as I have. And join in next week when we have Oscar Ryan, an emerging photographer, film director, who's really using his photography to find his ikigai and to help others recover from mental challenges as well post-pandemic. And that's going to be an interesting discussion from a younger person at the start of their career. And if you want to give any feedback, please feel free to do so at hello at livelongerthepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.